I'm going to read all of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but we'll just be focusing on verses 9 through 11 this morning on the exaltation of the humble one, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I am convinced that all of us have within us a fundamental urge, need, desire to be noticed, to be known, to be seen. I think that is what's behind our social media and social media trends. We all want to be seen. So we we log on somewhere, we throw something out into the ether, hoping somebody will see and affirm and interact, right? That need to be seen is behind that. We want to be known in community. I think it's behind TikTok videos. I'm going to wade into uh, waters that I don't understand. I know I'm getting old because there's this social media platform called TikTok, and I don't understand it. I don't know what happens there. But every once in a while I see a glimpse, and it just seems like this odd foreign world to me. Part of it is, it seems to me, from what I can tell, and I may be wrong on this, I'm almost sure I am, but so much of TikTok seems to be just be people dancing. Um, I don't know why. And often, dancing in, in weird and um, strange contexts. So people dance and then share little messages on that, and somehow the, the message is enhanced by the dancing, or the, the, the text is supposed to go through the, I don't know. But I, I saw one floating around, and I don't want to be critical, I'm, I'm just, as a person who doesn't understand this, I saw one of a mother in a hospital with her newborn baby, and, and she was communicating that the baby was sick and needing medical attention while dancing. And I had a hard time understanding what was going on in that video. Why is hard, difficult news being communicated by upbeat... Again, I'm old, I I don't understand it. And if you're confused by everything I just said, I'm I'm with you. (laughs) But the strangeness of it all illustrates what we have in us, which is a fundamental desire to be seen. We want to be known, we want somebody to look and see us. 
And I think that's what makes Christmas itself and the incarnation so startling is because the God who is above all came relatively anonymously. Uh, There are a few announcements to select people here and there. But by and large, the name that is above every name came quietly without being seen. And I think that shows us what and who God approves. Who does he see? Who does he look upon with favor? Isaiah 66, 2 tells us who God looks at. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is the person that God sees, the one God notices, the one who is humble. That is who God will look upon, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. And God will lift that person up and exalt them. And that's what these last two verses, or three verses of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, these last three verses are all about how God will exalt the humble one. He will lift up the humble one. So in the first uh, section of this a few weeks ago. We talked about the reason for Christ-like humility, that Paul is writing this section of the letter so that the church will be a united and humble church. He wants them to stand in unity, and if they're going to do that, they have to be humble. So in order to uh, motivate that, Paul then looks to the source of Christ-like humility, which is Jesus Christ himself, who came humbly even to death. So Christ is the source of Christ-like humility. And then here in verses 9 through 11, we have our last section, which shows us the fruit of Christ-like humility. Or we'll ask it this way as we walk through this. What is the outcome of Christ-like humility? What is the outcome of Christ-like humility? As we are humble, as Christ was humble, where does that lead? What is the benefit of humility? Where does it all end? In Jesus, we see the chief example of humility. And in Jesus, we see the outcome of Christ-like humility. And what we find is that God lifts up the humble. See that first in verse 9? Verse 9, I'll just have two main points for you today. First one's in verse 9, we see that Christ is exalted by the Father. Very simply, Christ is exalted by the Father. In this poem of Philippians 2, we have a turn from Christ's humility, his humiliation now, to his exaltation. In verse 9, Christ is exalted by the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's that little word, therefore, as this verse begins, and kind of the old thing, whenever you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Why is that there? And it links what comes after to what came before. And when you see therefore, it means that what comes after is caused by what came before. In other words, verses 6 through 8 are talking about Christ's humble obedience, his humiliation, even to death. And because of that, that has caused what happens here. Because of Christ's humility, we have his exaltation. He is lifted up. And then notice who is doing the lifting. 
Who is the one exalting? Because there, there's a subject change here. In verses 6 through 8, Christ is the subject. He is the one acting. He is the one who is being humble. He is the one who is being obedient, even to death. And then, in verse 9, there's a change in subjects. Now, it's God the Father who's acting. God the Father has exalted him. And I say that and point that out because it shows us that Jesus did not exalt himself. Jesus didn't lift himself up or bring his own glory about or he wasn't a self-promoter. So it is God who has exalted him. God who looked on his humble obedience and exalted him in response. It's not Jesus doing the exalting. As one commentator, R.P. Martin, said, this is the Father's amen to the Son's it is finished. The Father has approved him and exalted him. Jesus taught his disciples not to exalt themselves. He told them, if you're at a wedding feast, don't take the seat of highest honor. Go to the lowest seat. Jesus has embodied that He has taken the lowest seat so that somebody else might exalt him up and lift him up, which tells us that we should not ever seek our own praise and honor as much as we might want to. We all have that temptation, I think, all of us within ourselves, to desire and seek our own promotion and to be self-promoters. So when somebody else gets credit for something we do, there's something in us that says, hey, that's not right, I want that credit, I want that glory. I want somebody else to notice me. Do you feel that pull within you? Am I the only one? The desire to, to promote yourself, to let everybody else know how great you are. I see it all the time in Christian ministry. Pastors with their face prominently all over their book, with their own media ministry and empire. You wonder, who's doing the promoting there? We all have this pull to promote ourselves, but here we find even Jesus, the only one who could ever boast rightly, didn't. The only one who could glorify himself didn't. He was tempted to in the wilderness by Satan. Satan tempted him to promote himself and to show his own glory. Throw yourself down off the temple. Let angels catch you. Let everybody see how glorious you are. All this kingdom can be yours. That was the temptation Satan put before Jesus. You can avoid the cross and still have the kingdom. I can give it to you. Satan tempted Jesus with glory. He turned it down. Which is a big reversal of what happened with Adam and Eve. Satan tempted them. You can be like God. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He did not glorify himself but allowed the Father to exalt him. So bring up the question, what does it mean to be exalted? We use that word maybe, I don't know if we do an everyday conversation, but we've used it before. So what does it mean to be exalted? I think you can put it together. You could probably piece these things together if you thought about it a little bit. What does it mean for Jesus to be exalted here? And I'll say it's four things that God does to exalt Jesus. First, in resurrection. God exalts Jesus in the resurrection. So Jesus is raised from death to life. His body is raised, not just 
spirit, but he is bodily raised from the dead. And we know it's bodily because he eats fish, right? I always say that. Spirits don't eat fish. Jesus does after his resurrection. People can touch him, right? He has a physical body after resurrection. That Jesus continues on physically. And yet, there's something different about his body, isn't there? Like, there's hints at it, if you read the resurrection accounts, that his body isn't quite the same as before. People don't notice him at first. There's something different. And if you read some parts, it almost seems like he disappears and appears in rooms and locked doors. And you kind of go, that's weird. What's going on there? It seems that in some way, Jesus' resurrection body is different. It is, I might call it, an exalted body. It is a body equipped for eternal life and fit for the eternal kingdom. Adam and Eve once had sinless, perfect bodies, but they could die. Lazarus was resurrected, but only to die again. Jesus experienced the exalted resurrection in a body that will never perish and never die. It is an eternal body. We can't, or at least I can't, fully wrap my head around what that is, but we know somehow this physical resurrection body is different. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. He says, What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So Christ is exalted in the spiritual body, equipped for eternal life, and in that we have our picture of what we will experience in the bodily resurrection. So Christ is exalted in his resurrection and also in his ascension. That's the second way he's exalted. He's exalted as he ascends. We'll read about this in a couple weeks as we get into Acts, but remember the disciples are speaking with him. They're talking about the kingdom, and then Jesus ascends. The disciples look up, and the angels say, don't worry, he's coming back the same way. But he ascends from earth to the heavenly place. That is the ascension. He's kind of pictured as physically going up, but even more than that, it's, it's a transcendence into the heavenly places. And taking those things together, his physical resurrection, his ascension, it shows us that heaven isn't a place for the dead. That eternal life place, we don't enter there through death. We enter by finally being alive. Just as Jesus was in the resurrection. Only then, if I may use the phrase, is he fully alive. Heaven is a place for the ascended living as Jesus ascends. And what is he doing now that he has ascended? That's a third thing, third way in which Jesus is exalted. He is reigning, he is ruling, or here's the word that's used, he is in his session. Jesus has been seated, enthroned, that's what that word means, session, his enthronement. 
Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the Father. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but you may have seen kind of in old, like Victorian or medieval or medieval history pieces where you see the thrones that kings had, but they weren't singular chairs. They had like a chair attached to them to the left and maybe to the right also. It's like kind of an extended throne. In the same way, the son has ascended and sits at the right hand of the father, and that picture is he is sitting on that same throne with God. It's just extended, father and son, ruling and reigning together. That's what Hebrews 1 talks about. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is talking about Jesus' session, his enthronement over the universe. It's what Isaiah 9-6 was talking about. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's what Christ is doing now. He rules and reigns in heaven. He came as a humble child on Christmas morning. And now he rules in the heavenly spaces. And one day, the ruler will return. And it's the fourth way in which he is or will be exalted. He'll be exalted in his return. Now on that day, we'll rejoice in the second advent. Christmas being the first advent, the second advent is the return, the arrival of Jesus Christ, who will come the same way he left as the ascended Lord. And there he will make all things new. He will fully manifest his kingdom on earth. The kingdom of heaven, which is perfected, will then fully engulf the earth, so that the earth will be made new and be the recreated kingdom of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'm reading a lot of scripture today. I hope that's all right. We can do some theology day after Christmas. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So one day Christ, the ruling king, will come as the conquering king who has put all things under his feet. He has ruled over all things. He has put away death and the enemy and his rule will be undeniable as creation is consumed with the kingdom of Christ. That's what the humility of Christ will result in. Total exaltation. Or as the Greek says, as the ESV translates it, highly exalted. And the Greek is kind of a word for meaning super exalted. It's a superlative. It's an exaltation about which there is no higher. There's no higher form of exaltation. This is as high as it gets. That's how Jesus is exalted. Ephesians 1 sums up the exaltation well. Paul says that God has raised him from the dead, resurrected, and seated him at his right hand, session in the heavenly places far above the ascension all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come speaking of his return and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things and Paul says the same thing there in Ephesians 1 that he says here in Philippians 2 he's given a name that is higher than every other name we know there's power in names 
If you've read Harry Potter or seen the movies, you know there's power in a name, right? There's a name that nobody will say. Don't say it. Voldemort. Yeah, there's power in a name. Thank you. But there's no name more highly exalted or more powerful than the one Jesus Christ has given. I think Paul will tell us what that name is here in a few sentences, or a few phrases. But Jesus has given a name that is higher than every other name. And there's power in Jesus' name. This is why, if I can be crass for a moment, this is why Jesus' name is used as an expletive of frustration. Even in that kind of blasphemy, so to speak, it is an admission of the power of the name of Jesus. There is a reason that nobody, when they stub their toe, says, John Lennon! Because that's just a dead guy who has no power. We don't use any other name, or not we, but just generally the world doesn't utter any other name in frustration. Why? Because there's a certain power in the name of Jesus Christ. Is the power of the one who has humbled himself and now been exalted. That is a consistent theme of the New Testament that those who humble themselves will be exalted just as Christ was. It's what Mary herself sings about in the Magnificat, her song about her coming son. She says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God exalts. He lifts up the humble. I won't read all the verses to you, but it's a consistent pattern. So you can look at 1 Peter 5.6, Matthew 23.12, James 4.10, Matthew 5.3. All of these speak about the exalting of the humble. So, are you humble? Are you afraid to humble yourself? Because of how it wars with that part of you that wants to be glorified. And there's a part of you that wants to be seen, to be known, to be praised, to be recognized for all that you are and all that you've done. And Scripture calls you to humble yourself. Make yourself small and let God, in his time, exalt the humble ones. That's what he has done in Christ. That's how God treats the humble. It's the outcome of humility. In Christ and for Christ, he has been exalted. And second, after Christ is exalted by the Father, Christ is honored by the cosmos, or cosmos. Christ is honored by the cosmos. The whole world, all of creation, will be left with no choice but to honor Christ as Lord. That's what verses 10 through 11 are talking about. This is the outcome of humility for Christ. He is honored by the cosmos, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have another connecting word here that begins verse 10, so that, and that indicates purpose. So 
God has exalted Jesus Christ for this purpose so that, here's the result, all the world will honor him. All of creation will honor Jesus Christ. It'll happen at the name of Jesus, when everybody knows his name. See, so far, not everybody has known his name. Jesus came in humility. He came quietly. Not everybody recognized who he was. There were very few who saw him for who he was. But at birth, only a few visited. In his life, only a few worshipped him rightly. But at the name, when his name is announced, and it will not be quietly, it will not be missed by anybody, Jesus talks about his return as coming like lightning flashing across the sky. You cannot miss it. When he comes in glory and power, everybody will know the name. All will recognize it. Not just people, but all of creation. The hymn refers to those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. It's a way of referring to the entire created order, the cosmos. Whether angels or saints in heaven, whether people living on the earth or the dead or condemned or demons living under the earth, so to speak, wherever creation exists, all creation will praise the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What does it mean when you bow? What did that mean historically? To bow is to lower your head before your superior, to lower your head particularly before the king, basically saying, you can lop it off if you want. I am yours. I am your servant. You have authority and rule. That's what it means to bow. is a way of showing submission. You are my Lord. And when Jesus' name is appeared and he appears before all, every knee will bow and offer submission to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that is not, by definition or necessarily, a confession of faith. Because at that time it will be sight. People won't be confessing the lordship of Jesus because they believe it. They'll be confessing the lordship of Jesus because they have no other choice. It will be by compulsion. So this is not saying every person will believe savingly in Jesus. It's every ounce and part of creation will have to admit that he is Lord. In the same way, James talked about demons believing and shuddering. There will be parts of creation that confess his lordship in praise and parts of creation that confess his lordship in horror. But all will confess. They will call him Lord. And I think that's the name that is referred to in verse 9, the name that is above every name, he is Lord. And in that time, there was another confession that people in the Roman Empire were supposed to make. The confession being Caesar is Lord. And here saying, no, that won't be the confession of all people. You can honor the emperor. In fact, we're commanded to as Christians, as much as we don't like this, we actually are commanded to honor governing authorities, emperors, presidents, rulers. It's part of our Christian conviction. So we honor the emperor, honor president, honor the mayor. But there's only one Lord. That title is reserved for Jesus, and all will confess it. 
talking to my kids a couple weeks ago, I think. We are playing a game of how long can you hold your breath? We were at the zoo Christmas Eve morning, which is something I've never done, but the weather allowed it. So we were at the zoo, and we found out that a hippopotamus can hold its breath. How long do you think? We guessed. Five minutes. So it was five minutes. Uh, that's how long a hippo can hold its breath underwater. How long can you hold your breath? I give myself about 15 seconds. <laughs> at some point, no matter how long you can hold your breath, you have to go and exhale. And that's kind of how I picture creation. At the name of Jesus, all who've been holding within will have no choice but to exhale and call him Lord. Creation's been waiting and groaning to do this. And all people, when he returns, will exhale, and then exhalation will be, that's a word, Lord. So whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, I can predict your future. I know what you will be doing on that day. You will be bowing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. So I ask you now, is Jesus Lord? If you're a Christian, is Jesus Lord? Is your ultimate allegiance to him? This is our constant call as Christians, is to make Jesus Lord. And we need that call because there are many social pressures which will try to take lordship away from Jesus, whether it be family, whether it be work, or school, or political affiliation, or even other Christians and pastors, all sorts of people will call for your ultimate allegiance. So let it be settled in our minds that there is one Lord, one person to whom we owe our allegiance. And if anything else should contradict that, we can honor we bow down to one. In the end, we will all confess lordship of Jesus. And this is an interesting verse because it quotes Isaiah 45.23. Isaiah 45.23 is a song about the lordship of God. In this context, Yahweh, the creator of Israel, the Lord God. It's about Israel's God, Yahweh, and how he is the only true God. Listen to what Isaiah 45, 22 through 23 say. About Israel's God, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Here now, Paul quotes that which is about God and says it's about Jesus. Can you do the math? It is an undeniable expression of Jesus as the Lord, the exalted one. The words of Isaiah 45, 23 apply to him. All the Cosmos, the whole world will confess the lordship of Jesus, and surprisingly, it will be done to the glory of God the Father. Now consider that. The name of Jesus praised as Lord to the glory of God the Father, it will please God the Father for another to be worshipped. 
God the Father is honored when Christ the Son is honored, and vice versa. Jesus humbles himself for the sake of the praise of the Father, and God the Father in turn exalts the Son. So there's this divine mutual admiration going on in the Trinity, where Father and Son seek the praise of one another which is so contrary to how humans often exist, fighting for praise, fighting for a title, fighting for a supremacy. Uh, this is true also in you know, movie posters. If you ever go to the movie theater and you see posters for the movies or you see them online, I'm pretty sure part of the business is contract negotiations as to whose name is listed first and highest. And there are some posters where you see, like, well, that name's over here, and that's down, and, and it's, well, they negotiated one is further to the left, but it's higher, or, but it's not as high as the other one. And all that stuff is figured out in contract, whose name gets first billing. We compete over things like that. That's not how God works. He exalts the other within himself, the triune God, Father exalting Son, Son exalting Father, which shows us not only the humility of the Son, but the humility of God the Father himself. That he delights to honor the Son. In fact, it's a, an answered prayer of Jesus. This is an interesting verse. John 17, 5. We now know the Father honors this prayer of Jesus. And Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We have this glimpse into Trinitarian life where Jesus said, I had a certain glory before the incarnation. Would you give that glory again? And the Father says, Yes, and amen. Which brings up a question, if you think about it Is it the same glory? Like, maybe this is a little bit theoretical. But when the Son is restored to glory in his exaltation, all the world confesses. Is it exactly the same as the glory he had before? In other words, did he gain anything by his humiliation? I think yes. I think there is a greater glory the Son now has than he had before the Incarnation. Before the Incarnation, before his humiliation, Christ had all the attributes of God and all the qualities of God, and those stayed with him. But now, Jesus is enthroned and exalted as Savior. Not only as Lord, but Redeemer. Not only a king, but a priest. Now we glorify Jesus not only as king and lord, but as savior and friend. He has achieved redemption, which makes his glory greater. He is exalted, and furthermore, not only exalted as God, but as a man. As the God-man. And this is maybe the greatest miracle in all of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, is that in him 
humanity is exalted as well. That he has lifted us up with him. This was God's design and purpose from the very beginning. What did God create people to do? To rule over creation with him. It's part of the Imago Dei, the image of God. God created people to subdue the earth, to rule with him, to be his co-rulers. We have failed in it, but Christ has come and lifted us up with him in his exaltation. There's a movie I watched recently. It's on streaming on Hulu called The Painter and the Thief. It's a documentary. Super fascinating documentary. Not surprisingly, it's about a painter and a thief. Uh, there's a, a, a Czech woman who is a painter of beautiful paintings, immaculate paintings, and she has a gallery and showing, and one of her um, most valued paintings is stolen from it. And video records the theft of it. So they're able to track down who the thief was, the guy who stole the painting. He's a Norwegian guy, and this is in Oslo. And at the hearing and the trial, I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but somehow she was able to speak to him, and she made a connection with him and said, when the time is loud, I'd love to paint you. And that's what happens. He's released from prison. They meet up. They form a friendship. And he, all his life, has been just a drugged-out criminal thief, she, an artist and a painter. And finally, she, she does paint a portrait of him, and there's a great moving scene in the documentary where she hangs it up, and he sees it for the first time, and he breaks down, weeping, sobbing, can't control himself. Why? He's a guy who said all his friends, all of his whole life were now either drugged, jailed, or dead. He has been a low life, so to speak, all his life. And yet one person literally painted him in a new light and exalted him, lifted him up. And he saw beauty in himself and broke down. And I think this is a small metaphor for what Christ has done with humanity. A broken mess that he has come down and taken on to his own nature and then lifted up and exalted in him. Athanasius said, he became what we are that he might make us what he is. Listen to how scripture speaks of our exaltation in Christ. If you're uncomfortable with that word, just listen to how the Bible speaks of us being lifted up in him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Or Philippians 3, 20-21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11-12 The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
if we endure, we will also reign with him. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That is the outcome of Christ-like humility. We are glorified in and with Jesus Christ. He has earned that glory through his own obedience and his own humility. And there's the good news in all of this. Because again, we talk about we can look to Christ as our example, and that can be horribly depressing if we know we could never live up to his humility. But the point of this is that in Jesus Christ, we have his humility, we have his obedience given to us so that we might be exalted and lifted up in him. If it were up to us, we might never earn that exaltation because we could never be humble enough. We're too arrogant, we're too proud, we're too self-centered. There is nothing in us that could earn that exaltation. And we might look at this and think, well, if glory is the result of humility, what about me when I'm proud? If this is the result, if this is the fruit, what if I can't earn it? What if I can't achieve that? What if I can't make myself low enough to earn that kind of raising? And the answer is, you can't. None of us can, and that's the point is none of us are able to, none of us did, but Jesus did. And Jesus, in his humility, has given us obedience, given us his humility, so that we might be rewarded in the same way he is. In Christ, we do not get what we deserve. We get the glory and honor he earned by his humble obedience. That's what Christmas is ultimately about, if I can say it this way. Not only the condescension of Christ to become like us, but the exaltation of Jesus Christ to lift us up to where he is. And that is the outcome of Christ-like humility. To one day be fully seen and known by God in Christ. And the question for you is, are you in Christ and is Christ your Lord? One day your tongue will confess that he is Lord. The only question is, will that be by compulsion begrudgingly or will it be by choice now because you've humbled yourself and honored Jesus Christ if you do you'll have all of his obedience his humility and his glory as well you pray with me Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that the work of Jesus Christ is complete, that we need not add anything to it. We can't add anything to it, but his righteousness, his obedience, his humility is complete in and of itself. And because of that, Lord, we can take it and hold on to it and humble ourselves and say, we need that. We need all of Christ's obedience credited to us. And then we can confess that though we don't deserve it, 
we will have his glory as well. There's so much about that we don't understand, that we can't comprehend. But we can know it'll be worth it to humble ourselves now before you and to fall on your grace to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, knowing that just as you raised him up in the end, so you will raise us as well. Thank you for the salvation we have in the Son born to us. Amen.